0: Thanks to Dan Brown's runaway, global bestseller, The Da Vinci Code. And don't you be putting on these pious airs to me about The Da Vinci what? You know all about The Da Vinci Code. I know you do. Thanks to Dan Brown's mega seller. Just in case you haven't seen the book. Okay, I'll put it on the screen for you. There it is. The Da Vinci Code. 40, get, get these numbers by the way, 40 million hard copies, hard covers rather, 40 million hard covers in print, 40 million. It just came out a few uh, months ago with a paperback, 6 million paperbacks now in print, making that a new record for the highest weekly sales for any paperback in history. Don't you tell me you don't know about Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. And, of course, Hollywood, never wanting to miss an opportunity to cash in, in just a few days from now, will be releasing to theaters across this nation and the world The Da Vinci Code on the big screen. I say thanks to Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, The whole world, it seems, has become transfixed, or maybe the word ought to be fixated, on the women in Jesus' life. Now, one of the women, named Mary, we've known all along. The other of the women, at least the two we think of, also named Mary, we haven't known much at all about, period, but because of Dan Brown's Fantastic. And by the way, the word fantastic is based on the word fantasy because of his fantastic declaration. And we'll get we'll really get into this next Sabbath, you and I together. And the world uncritically, of course, is always eating, drinking anything that's in print or on the screen and believing it's true. His fantastic suggestion that the other Mary, Mary Magdalene, was the secret wife of Jesus through the decades of that first century. Because of that, we're going to begin right now a little two-part mini-series called The Women in Jesus' Life. The Da Vinci Code Part 1 today, The Da Vinci Code Part 2. Next Sabbath, you better bring a pencil because you're going to have a study guide. You're going to fill in. You're going to be able, I hope by the grace of God, to articulate why. You're going to be able to articulate and separate fact from fiction. Because of the preponderance of fiction out there regarding both women, we're going to take a look at these two women, the two Marys. We'll take a look at them and we'll separate fact from fiction. And because, here's another stat for you, because tomorrow more Americans will die a long distance than any other single day in the entire year. More long distance calls tomorrow in America because of Mother's Day. Let's begin with the first Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Let's pray together. Holy Father, How fortunate our Lord was for the women in His life. How fortunate we are for the women in our lives. Please teach us the truth about the first Mary, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to put on the screen for you a picture of the Australian artist, Peter Schippenhain. Beautiful work of bronze. That's all bronze. You see there on the screen. This is the only time in all of Scripture the two women that are the focus of this miniseries were ever together, recorded in Scripture. They were obviously together on other occasions. This is the only one. It's that dramatic moment at the summit of that, of that Shaley Mountain called Golgotha. The question is, who's that man? Who's that man? Open your Bible, please, to the Gospel of St. John, chapter 19. And let's have, let's have a Bible teaching today together on this very joyous weekend. The Gospel of St. John, chapter 19, please. I'll be in the New International Version today. If you didn't bring a Bible, I'd like you to lock this scene into your own mind and heart, and I'd like you to do it with the words, and not on the screen, but on a Bible right in front of you. So please take out your pew Bible. You can turn to page 730, and let's, let's lock this scene in all of our minds and spirits. John chapter 19, let's drop down. This is, this is Good Friday. It was no Good Friday then. It was terrible and tragic Friday. Verse 25, near the cross of Jesus, read along there, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. While this little mini-series is tracking only two Marys, you note that there are three Marys at the top of Calvary that Friday. Three Marys. All three bear the name, in the Greek, Maria. But in the Aramaic, it would be Mariam, which is, of course, a rendition of the Hebrew, which is Miriam, which scholars believe was a Hebrew rendition of the Egyptian name Mirit, which means the Beloved One. What a beautiful name. Many of you had that name. Praise God. It's a lovely name. Okay, so now we have three women. All with the same name, in the same place, at the same time. What's up? Read the next verse, please. Verse 26. And when Jesus saw his mother there. You know he's on the cross, don't you? When he saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved. There's no question. That's John's code. Bathed in humility. Identification of himself. He will never identify himself. He's just that disciple that Jesus... In the Greek it actually reads, kept on loving. He's not boasting, I'm the greatest. No, Jesus kept on loving me. There's a whole sermon in that, by the way. But when Jesus looked down from the cross, verse 26, and he saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. In verse 27, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. What has just Happen Here, hit the pause button, please. Don't go a moment longer than that. Because if you and I will pause long enough to brood on what we have just seen, I tell you what, it will take your breath away if you comprehend what has just happened. We're so hurrying on to get to the it is finished. We miss this moment. Let me unpack for you five realities, five realities at this moment as Jesus speaks those words. Reality number one, we have here the God of the universe incarnated into human flesh, hanging and dying from a Roman cross. Reality number one. Reality number two, that awful funereal darkness that will descend upon Golgotha's center victim and will strangulate him with the sins of the world. Remember, remember, it gets dark at noon. And it's dark for how many hours? Come on, Bible scholars, how many hours? It's dark for three hours. It can't be dark yet. So this is minutes before noon. Minutes before he slips into his private hell. Reality number three, facing what he would believe, he will believe to be personal extinction as a sacrifice for this world's sins. Jesus is slowly asphyxiating from this barbaric form of torture and execution. Reality number four, the Romans coined a word. Excruciatus, which means from out of the cross in Latin, to depict the excruciating pain of suffering on that tree. And reality number five, he's minutes away from his God forsakenness. He's struggling for every breath he can suck in because of the way they pinned him to that stake designed to slowly strangulate the victim of the cross. Now you see it. Given those five realities... Can you please explain to me how Jesus still turns His bruised and bloodied face so that He can find His mother in that crowd? Had it been me, I would not have been thinking of my mother. I would have been thinking of nobody but me and this horrible, catastrophic, spiritual doom that I'm about to face. He finds her. His tortured eyes find the visage of that woman who was a teenager, just a teen, when she said, yes, be it unto me as you have said. And in her youthful womb, he was born. I want to go back to that moment. I want to go back only to Luke. Only Luke captures this. So we'll get back to John in a moment, but I want you to go to Luke chapter 1, the gospel of Luke chapter 1. I want to relive that moment when Gabriel comes to teenage Mary. As I said during the children's story, she could have been oh, 16 at the outset. I would put her more at 15, maybe 14. She's 50 now, so that you, some of you like to visualize faces. She's 50. He lived 34 years. Add 34 to 16, she'd be 50 at the cross, okay? She'd be a baby boomer today. Pick it up in verse 26. Luke chapter 1, In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, King James says, Hail! Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. The Greek for highly favored really reads, You are endowed with grace. Now, it happens that because of a miss Translation, The Latin, centuries ago, rendered this plena gratia, which means full of grace. But that isn't what the angels said at all. Now, Wycliffe came along and said, I'll use that. And so did Tyndale and Catholic translators have also interpreted it full of grace. But that mistaken rendering has led to the conclusion that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a dispenser of grace. When in fact, she is a recipient of grace, not a dispenser. Paul uses the identical word that Luke does in Ephesians chapter one, verse six, when he says you have been accepted in the beloved. That means you've been endowed with grace in the beloved. Ephesians one, six. He uses this for all Christians. Verse twenty nine. And Mary, wouldn't you be? Verse twenty nine. And Mary was greatly troubled at the angels words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But verse thirty, the angel said, to her, don't be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus and he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever and his kingdom will never end. How can this be? The teenager whispers back, I'm just a virgin. The angel answers in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is already in her sixth month. Remember this, little Mary. Remember this, little mother, whoever you, whatever your name is. Little mother, nothing is impossible with God. So don't you ever stop praying for that child. Don't you ever give up because nothing is impossible with God. Hallelujah. And so what does Mary say? Verse 38, I am the Lord's servant, she answered. May it be to me as you have said. And shoo, the angel is gone. Too quickly. You and I hurry through this prelude to the Christmas story because we've got to get to the manger. We've got to get to the manger. And we neglect to marvel at the selfless piety and devotion of this teenage girl to God. You think about it knowing the stigma and the shame that would be attendant to her as a result of this supernatural impregnation and pregnancy. I mean, what are you going to say to people? Anything you say makes you sound like a fool. Knowing that, youthful Mary quietly demurs. May it be, as you have said unto your handmaiden, so brave, so blessed, so beautiful the faith. Of this little teenage girl, what do you say? Huh? Come on. That was the young mother of Jesus. A mother who deserves our admiration and our awe, but not our worship. For as she was, we are the same. But surely, meant. That there would have been a, a, a modicum of pride and reticence in the heart of this young teenage pregnant bride when she's forced by overcrowded circumstances to have to give birth on the floor of a cave in Bethlehem. Let me put it up here, the King James. This is the great, this is the great Christmas text. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger. Because there was no room for them. No room in the inn. And when those country bumpkin shepherds came bursting into her delivery room hours later, the weary young Mary was not inattentive to the deep mystery of that midnight birth. Drop down past verse 7. You're in chapter 2. You've turned the page. Drop down. Because the shepherds now go flying out the door. They've got to tell everybody. And look at verse 18. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. I'll tell you what, she must have been a contemplative girl, this young mother, who brooded before God over things both divine and human. You know why? Because Luke repeats himself in this same chapter. He makes the point 12 years later, she's still the same. Drop down to that familiar story when they've lost boy Jesus. They've lost him. I'll tell you what, if you're a parent and you ever lose your child in a downtown uh, shopping mall, it is panic, panic, panic. I know. They went crazy for three days. Sure that some nefarious plot has been fulfilled at last and their boy, the Messiah, has been snatched and is dead. So they spent three days, but they find him in the temple. You know the story well. Verse 48, and when his parents saw him, boy, Jesus, when they were 12 years old, when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, what my mother said to me, and what your mother said to you, why are mothers all alike? God bless our mothers. Son, son, why have you treated us like this? Isn't that right? It's always like, why did you treat me this way? What's the matter for you? Why have you treated us like this? Your father and I. Oh, how many times have I heard that? Your father and I. Your father and I. Your father and I. She was a very human mother. Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Oh, Jesus. Here comes the boy. 49, verse 49. Why were you searching for me, youthful innocence? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house about my father's business? You didn't know that, Mama? But they didn't understand what he was trying to say to them. And now here comes that line again. Then he, Jesus, went down. That would actually be up to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother, here it is again, treasured all these things in her heart. She must have been a contemplative girl, this mother of Jesus, who brooded before God over things divine and human. And Michelangelo is trying to teach us that very point. I want to show this to you. Thanks to my friend Greg Constantine, I learned something about great art. Let's put it on the screen here. I want you to look to the far left. That's the Pieta. That's in St. Peter's today. That was, that was carved first. Michelangelo did both. That's the moment after the Calvary moment we read just a moment ago. He's taken down from the cross. That's Mother Mary holding her deceased son in her arms. All right? Now, years later, Michelangelo carved the... Uh, it's called the Madonna and Child in Bruges, Belgium. All right? That's where it is now. So they call it Madonna and Child. There. Now, Greg said, Dwight, I want you to see this. I want you to look at the faces of both Marys. If you look closely, you will notice that Michelangelo kept the teenage face all the way through to Calvary. Do you see that her face is nearly identical? She's the same age. Locking into our consciousness, this woman... Teenager who brooded over the mystery of this birth, never lost that contemplative spirit, carried it all the way through. And even at Calvary, she pondered and treasured this in her heart, a broken heart at Calvary, obviously. Oh, and by the way, don't forget verse 52 there in Luke 2. Don't forget verse 52. Come on, we all memorize it as kids. Say it out loud with me. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. How did Jesus get so well-rounded, fully orbed an education? Desire of Ages. Let me put it on the screen for you. The child Jesus did not receive instruction in the synagogue schools. Oh, no. His mother was his first human teacher. From her lips and from the scrolls of the prophets, he learned of heavenly things. The very words which he himself had spoken to Moses for Israel, he was now taught at his mother's knee. God bless our mother's knees. As he advanced from childhood to youth, he did not seek the schools of the rabbis. He needed not the education to be obtained from such sources, for God was his instructor. God himself. And by the way, whom did God use to teach his boy? Mother Mary. Mary, the great model for homeschooling mothers. And there are a bunch of you here. God bless you. That's your model. I had a homeschooling mother who instilled in the heart of us kids a thirst for knowledge, and a love for God. God bless our homeschooling mothers. And God grant us, by the way, more U of M's. U of M's is a good school to graduate from. University of Mother, U of M-K, University of Mother's Knee. God grant us more. You young mother standing in the very back, so proud of you. Your knee is that first enrollment for your child. Praise God. Why why Mama's Knee? Let me put put another quotation on the screen for you. A century ago, these words were written. This is something. Those who keep the law of God look upon their children with indefinable feelings of hope. You know what? Last week, the whole nation celebrated Ten Commandments Day. It used to be unpolitically correct to talk about keeping the law of God. Now it's the most popular thing in evangelical Christianity. This, what goes round, comes round. And now the law is big, which means you and I don't need to keep apologizing for it either. Those, put that up on the screen again, please. Those who keep the law of God. That's you. That's I. Those who keep the law of God look upon their children with indefinable feelings of hope and fear, wondering what part they will act in the great conflict that is just before them. There isn't a a heart that beats with the hope of Jesus soon coming that does not ask the question, what role will my child have in preparing the world? What role will that girl have? What role will that boy have? You can't help but ask. God, use my child. Every Jewish mother prayed, could this be the Messiah? God, use my child. The anxious mother questions, oh, I like this. What what stand will they take? Will they stand for the truth? What can I do to prepare them to act well their part so that they will be the recipients of eternal glory? Great responsibilities rest upon you, mothers. Although you may not stand in national councils, you may do a great work for God in your country. You may educate your children. You may aid them to develop characters that will not be swayed or influenced to do evil, but will sway and influence others to do right. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And then I love this last sentence. By your fervent prayers of faith, you can move the arm that moves the world. Praise God. Huh? Isn't that something? You can move the arm that moves the world. Wow, there is no small mission to be a mother today. And so Jesus turns His bloodied and bruised face toward the woman who gave Him birth, could have been thinking about himself and the impending doom. And instead he turns to this woman who, as a young teenage girl, suckled him into boyhood, taught him through childhood, raised him to manhood. The same mother in Jesus, by the way, at Calvary. The same mother in Jesus ended up. You remember that story? They ended up at that little village called Cana at a family wedding. You remember that? Jesus has been away from home for months now. Reports of His baptism at the hands of His kinsman John have circulated their way northward up to that little village of Nazareth. Mary has heard the empty carpenter shop. Could it be? Could it be now? She eagerly waits the consummation that her Messiah boy will surely now bring to Israel. And when they meet at that wedding for the first time, it's been weeks now, when they meet, boy, oh boy, has her boy changed. She looks at him and she says, this boy has not eaten in a year. Who's been feeding Him? That's what every mother asks. Who's been feeding Him? But then she also notices a band of young men who are, who are hanging tight to the side of her, her son, who cling to every word that Jesus speaks. Could this be the hour? And then when the wedding... Yeah, come on, we all know the story. You know it well. When the, when, the, when the wedding festivities ran out of wine... Mother Mary comes to Jesus, and she makes a simple statement. Isn't this amazing? You know what she says to Jesus? She says, Son, they have no more wine. Now, ladies and gentlemen, when your mother made a statement like that to you, was was she simply announcing reality? When your mother walked down the hall and found you playing in the family room, and and she said, Son, your room is dirty. Was she, was she simply asking you to uh, accede to that interpretation of reality? Absolutely not. Stuck inside that observation is a subtle command. You go to your room right now and clean it or I'm going to kill you. <laughs> you knew that was what your mother was saying, didn't you? When she said, boy, your room is dirty, that means clean it up now. So when she comes up to Jesus and she says, son, they have no more wine, that means give it to them. Jesus knows... I love this exchange. Let's put it on the screen. We don't have time to look it up. Put it on the screen. This is the, this is the great uh, miracle of Cana. The first miracle Jesus ever performed. This is John chapter 2. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. And now notice Jesus' polite reply. Dear woman, why do you involve me? He replied, My time has not yet come. I, I can't do anything, mom. This is not my time. And now notice what mother does. She said to the servants... Do whatever He tells you. (laughs) Because Mama has already commanded with her eyes what her lips diplomatically refuse to say to Him. And that is, give Him wine. And Jesus, bless His obedient filial heart, ever polite to His mother, responds, And the first miracle of His supernatural glory takes place. It just goes to show, ladies and gentlemen, that mothers have a way of getting their way even when you've grown up and left home. So they they never get... My mother never gives up on me. Never. And mothers, don't you ever give up on your children either. All right. But, but, but... Hold it. That Friday noon, just before noon, when Jesus turns His bruised and bloody face toward the woman who gave Him birth... You know, she may have exerted some extra maternal pressure at that wedding and he had gladly accepted the moment to be the first revealing of his divine glory. But Jesus had to be careful and he had to be clear so that his own mother would never mistake her maternity for spiritual precedence or divine elevation. And that is why one day when Jesus, later on, long after the village of Cana, when Jesus is teaching a crowd of people, they're choking around Him, the mother and brothers show up at the edge of the crowd, and they say, hey, 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 get the word to the man in the front. We're here. And so the word goes boom, 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 right up to the layers of humanity, right up to the Lord Himself. Hey, your mother and brothers are here. And then Jesus, sweeping His hands out over this crowd that has gathered around Him. He speaks these words in Matthew 13, 49 and 50. Take a look at this. He says, Hey, hey, hey! Here are My brother. Here are My mother and My brothers. For whoever does the will of My Father in heaven is My brother and sister and mother. Let there be no confusion among the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. His godly Mother was just that, a godly mother. She was a recipient of divine grace and favor, never a dispenser of either. She enjoyed neither sacred elevation nor divine prominence amongst the New Testament church, for she would be mentioned only once after that Calvary moment, only once in the New Testament. She is never called the mother of God, ever. Never. But she surely knew the loving devotion of a community that with gratitude praised the Most High God for the faithfulness of this Jewish mother who bore the Son of God into this life and became God's agent in preparing His Son for His life mission. As Jesus turns His bruised and bloody face toward the woman who gave Him birth, it is one of the great Greatest demonstrations of filial love in literature. In the moment of his own excruciatus he provides for her lifelong care one last time. Go back to that uh, summon of Golgotha. Back to John 19. I want to read it again? Verse 26, John 19. 26. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, "Dear woman, here is your son." And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his house. The NIV appropriately softens the actual Greek word. It's it's just woman. But the NIV says, that's too stark. It sounds like he might be impolite. And so the NIV adds, dear woman, But it is significant, ladies and gentlemen, to note that as Jesus now dies for Mary's sins and Mary's salvation, He does not call her mother. No. Woman. Woman. With hands that can no longer point. With his eyes, he he looks to young John and he says, Behold your son. And then he looks at the boy and he says, Behold your mother. His eyes darting back to his mother. Desire of Ages. Look at this. Desire of Ages. John understood Christ's words and accepted the trust. He at once took Mary to his home and from that hour cared for her tenderly. Oh, pitiful, loving Savior, amid all his physical pain and mental anguish. He had a thoughtful care for his mother. He had no money with which to provide for her comfort, but he was enshrined in the heart of John and he gave his mother his mother to him as a precious legacy. Thus, he provided for her that which she needed most, the tender sympathy of one who loved her because she loved Jesus. And oh, I love this. In receiving her as a sacred trust, John was receiving a great blessing. She was a constant reminder of his beloved Master. How would you like the mother of Jesus to retire in your home? Huh? Would you ever forget Him? Never. Never. You'd bury her one day as her adopted boy. Yes, you would. And how shall it be with your mother? How is it with my mother? We who do not suffer on Calvary's tree, how tenderly do we provide and care for the mother God gave to us? desire of ages doesn't miss a beat. And it poignantly makes the point. Look at these words on the screen. The perfect example. Of Christ's filial love shines forth with undimmed luster from the mist of ages. For nearly 30 years, Jesus, by his daily toil, had helped bear the burdens of the home. And now, even in his last agony, he remembers to provide for his sorrowing widowed mother. The emphasis is mine. The same spirit will be seen in every disciple of our Lord. Do you have a mother who's still alive? Do you? What are you providing for her? Those who follow Christ will feel that it is a part of their religion to respect and provide for their parents. And I love this line. From the heart where His love is cherished, father and mother will never fail of receiving thoughtful care and tender sympathy. I tell you what, I've got to call my mother i got, I, got to, I got to write my mother. I have to visit my mother. I need for her to know how much her life of loving sacrifice means to me. To me. Not the rest of the siblings. To me. I need to tell her how much I really do love her. I need to tell her how grateful I am that the Most High God chose her to be my mom for as long as the two of us should live. Look at that line from the heart where His love is cherished. Father and mother will never fail of receiving thoughtful care and tender sympathy. I've got to call my mother. I've got to tell her that Jesus is a friend of mothers. Indulge me, please. Indulge me. Just one last quotation. Beautifully encapsulates Jesus' attitude towards mothers and women. This is powerful. You'll want to jot the reference down. I'll put it on the screen for you. If mothers would go to Christ more frequently, if they'd trust Him more fully, their burdens would be lighter and they'd find rest. Oh, I love this. Jesus knows the burden of every mother. He is her best friend in every emergency. Some of you mothers, I know your story. I know what you're going through. Don't you give up, Mama. You cannot give up. You cannot. He knows. He is your best friend in that emergency with your child. You think you're the only mother? No. As He has stood by throughout the millennia, He's your best friend too. Ah, His everlasting arms, isn't this beautiful? His everlasting arms support her. That Savior whose mother struggled with poverty and privation sympathizes with with every mother in her work and hears her earnest prayers. That Savior who went on a long journey for the purpose of relieving the anxious heart of a Canaanite woman will do as much for the afflicted mother of today. He who gave back to the widow of Nain, her only son, as he was being carried to burial, is today touched by the bereaved mother's woe. He who wept at the grave of Lazarus who pardoned Mary Magdalene, who on the cross remembered His mother's knees, who after the resurrection appeared to the weeping women and made them His messengers, is today woman's best friend, ready to aid her in her need if she will trust in Him. Hallelujah and Amen. Oh, dear mother, dear mother, you cannot please give up. Woman, Calvary's son and friend of mothers, there it is. He's your friend too. Don't you give up. One of my heroes from last century, the great preacher, H.M.S. Richards Sr. He once composed a poem and dedicated it to his mother, and I want to read these words before I walk away from this pulpit. It's a beautiful poem. It's entitled When My Mother Tucks Me In. Oh, that brings back the memories for me and I'm sure for many of you too. Listen to this. How the changing years have borne me far away from days of home. Now no mother bends above me when the time for sleep has come. But it gives my poor heart comfort And it brings me rest within just a dream that I am little and my mother tucks me in. As I kneel there with my brother by the bed above the stairs and I hear my gentle mother whisper, Boys, remember prayers? Then she comes and prays beside us, Father, keep them from all sin. Oh, her kiss is tender, loving when my mother Tucks me in. When at last the evening finds me and life's busy day is done, all the bands of earth that bind me shall be broken one by one, then, O Lord, be Thou my comfort, calm my soul, Thy peace to win. Let me fall asleep as gently as when Mother tucked me in.